Now I'm very, very proud of uh, everybody that works at Loon. Um, it gives me a lot of pleasure to think that it all started from this one little shop and one product, but now all these brilliant people are bringing their own ideas to the table and it's actually just making Loon even more amazing. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Some chefs spend their lifetime dedicated to the art of gastronomy and pushing the boundaries. Others immerse themselves in a particular cuisine and seek inspiration through tradition. But a rare few spend their life mastering a single product, a commitment to precision in each exquisite detail during every stage of the process, a celebration of the creation, complexity and ultimate enjoyment, and in this case, of a croissant. Kate Reed is the founder and co-owner of Loon in Melbourne. Kate, how are you? Very well. How are you? Good. The croissant. The croissant, yes. Good pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's um, everything that you do and it's such got such iconic uh, status. Why the croissant? Yeah, that's a, a potentially very long answer to what seems a simple question, but... Um, not many people know that my background is not baking at all. It's actually engineering. Uh, many moons ago when I was very young, I decided that I wanted to uh, design Formula One cars. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> which is a, a, bit, a bit of a difference <laughs> to baking croissants. But um, I kind of decided that at a very early age, maybe around about um, 10 or 11 years old, uh, my childhood was happily peppered with memories of watching the Formula One races all around the world with my dad every Sunday night. And, um, yeah, I, I, from a very early age, I really wanted to be part of that world. And I went along to a careers day at RMIT engineering one day, and I explained to them what I wanted to do. And they recommended that I focus my efforts on aerospace engineering because that wow. – Yeah, that – a field of study would give me the greatest knowledge in areas applicable to uh, high-level motor racing. So obviously aerospace sounds a little bit more like rockets and aeroplanes and things like that. And obviously you can do that if you have a degree in aerospace engineering, but I was more interested in making a Formula One car stick to the ground than I was an aeroplane taking off in the air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, did the five years of study in Melbourne to get my aerospace engineering degree and headed off to the UK one year out of university with the offer from Williams F1 to join their team as an aerodynamicist. So, yeah, my, my career started off very differently to baking croissants. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think why croissants, though, um, in answer to the question – Croissants are an incredibly technical and difficult product to do very well. And when I finally transitioned from engineering into what I now do, which is baking, um, I started off with pretty simple things like biscuits and, and slices and cakes and all the kind of CWA or Women's Weekly style baking, like things that you can do quite easily at home. But I still found the science of baking, like this fascination with being able to pull together ingredients that by themselves are essentially inedible. Like you wouldn't tuck into a bowl of flour or a bowl of raw sugar or, I don't know, maybe some people just eat butter. I mean, I've come close to doing that myself. 
but when you bring these ingredients together, some science happens and, and the interaction with the ingredients to create something that is so much more than the sum of its parts. So early on, my more scientific and technical brain, like I think a, lo- a lot of chefs will talk about um, and cuisine chefs will talk about cooking um, with, you know, based on instinct and taste and, and you know, sampling as they're cooking to adjust and, and change flavour profiles. But with baking, you really have to have to understand the recipe and the interaction of the ingredients and that really appealed to my scientific brain. And, um, yeah, I, st- I started on much simpler things but I think got bored of them quite quickly and and wanted wanted to learn more about classic French patisserie which is – you know, it's the foundation of a lot of our basic recipes that we now use and ended up in Paris and, and learned how to make croissant and, and really thought that I'd found my thing. Like it's such a technical thing, not just in, in how the ingredients work together, but also that like that physical process of, of creating the lamination or the layers between the butter and the dough and, and then the formation of this product like incorporating yeast, which is an active ingredient that you need to understand humidity and temperature and, and there's so many different variables. I really felt like I'd found something I could sink my teeth into. This uh, background that you had in aerospace engineering, is it, has that been useful in, in what you do now? It's a lot of people ask that and I think um, a lot of people draw this, you know, um, from engineering to croissants and it seems like such a strange you know, line to draw. It's not like I apply aerodynamic techniques to making my croissants, but one of the things you learn when you're studying engineering is how to think like an engineer and how to approach a problem and come up with a solution and how to do testing and experimentation. And to go back a little bit, um, it's uh, we're, we're jumping all over the place, but uh, I did go to Paris and work in a boulangerie, which is where I did my initial learning in how to make croissant. But the period of time I spent in Paris was actually really short. It was only a month. And uh, when I came back to Melbourne, all I wanted to do was have that experience that I'd had in Paris of, you know, going into a boulangerie and having a perfect croissant and, and a coffee. And Melbourne is so famous and well-known for the quality of our coffee and, you know, I was working when I came back and on my days off, I would, I'd research all the different bakeries in Melbourne and, and I'd go to one on my days off and I'd think today's the day that I'm going to have that croissant that reminds me of being in Paris. And I just didn't find it. And eventually it dawned on me that um, maybe I had the skill and the inclination to make that croissant that that I had in Paris that I hadn't found in Melbourne. So I ended up finding this tiny little space down in Elwood, which is a seaside suburb in Melbourne. And it's fairly residential and um, difficult to get to by public transport. There's nothing in particular that that screams out about a foodie suburb. But there was this little shop that had very cheap rent and I spent all my savings that of money that I'd earned in my previous career literally emptied the bank account and went and bought all the specific pieces of equipment that I knew that I needed to make croissants. And I still clearly remember that first day being in the space and making the croissant dough, which is phase one of the the three-day process to make a croissant. And I remember tipping the dough out onto the bench and looking at like 
these kilos and kilos of like, you know, yellowy dough in front of me thinking, oh my God, I don't know what to do next because I yeah, like making the dough in Paris had been my job. And towards the end of the month I'd been there, I'd begged the head pastry chef to let me roll some croissants, but there's so many steps between making the dough and rolling a croissant, let alone what happens after you've rolled that raw croissant. And I like I had these two parts of the process in my in my armory, and I didn't know the rest of the three day process. And yeah, I was flummoxed. Like I'm standing at the bench thinking, okay, well, what do I do now? And I mean, I could have gone to pastry school. I could have gone and done a full apprenticeship, but I figured that I had all the equipment around me. And then going back to your question, I thought, well, I'm an engineer and I might be an aerospace engineer, but I know how to break down a problem and I know how to reverse engineer something and I know how to create solutions and testing. So I'm going to imagine that end product that represents the perfect croissant for me and I'm going to reverse engineer it. So the process that I landed on is actually incredibly different to the classic way to make a croissant. So and I think because the foundations of how to make a loon croissant are so different to that, like, you know, centuries-old classic French technique, because we're not tied to that, because – I haven't trained for years under a master baker who trained under a master baker and so forth. Um, that process that I initially created has always been open to improvement and iteration, which is, again, a very engineering mindset to take. So the pastry chefs that we hire at Loon are independent, intelligent, forward-thinking, knowledgeable pastry chefs who have ideas on how the process can be improved. So on a daily basis, this engineering mindset of iteration and improvement and testing is applied to our process and it continues to evolve and, and become better, more efficient, more understood. We're more knowledgeable in our product. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of the process. And I, like I, I do put that down to approaching it with an engineering mindset rather than a baker's mindset. I want to get more into the process a little bit later on, but... What was food like for you growing up? Um, I was just talking to someone about this this morning, actually. Um, my mum, uh, when she had myself and my brother, and I should point out at this point that my brother is also my business partner in Loon. So we grew up, uh, we were really lucky. Like mum uh, decided to be a stay-at-home mum for our early years. And it means that um, – Every meal, like we never got takeout. We always got beautiful home-cooked meals. We always sat around the table as a family and enjoyed them. Every day when we'd come home from school, mum would make, you know, she'd bake something for us for afternoon tea. We always had handmade lunches. I think we were brought up with like, it wasn't, it wasn't gourmet or elaborate, but it was made with love and it was made with fresh ingredients. So I think both myself and Cam were brought up with a real appreciation for, you know, handmade um, made from scratch, um, made with love. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, mum was, she doesn't, she wouldn't say it herself, but I thought she was a really good baker and, um, she would always make beautiful cakes and biscuits and, and we were lucky enough to sort of grow up with, 
you know, a kitchen that, that always smelt good because there was some delicious baked good coming out of the oven. When you were reverse engineering a croissant, do you remember the first time that you nailed it and you were happy with the outcome? I remember the first time that, um, like, obviously I had not not the direct hands-on experience, but the baker that I'd worked for in Paris was generous with his knowledge, like things like how long he proved his croissants for and um, the times and temperatures. And so when I was reverse engineering it, I had to start somewhere. So I started with known information that another baker had handed on to me. And I remember um, putting the croissants in the prover that night and being really excited about waking up the next morning to see these perfectly proven croissants that that I imagined would lead to that that perfect croissant that I wanted to reverse engineer. And I got up that morning and they'd been proving for the time he'd said and for the temperature and humidity that he said. And I looked at them and they 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 looked tiny and a bit raw still. And I thought, ah, oh, that's like not really what I expected to see when I woke up this morning. And I thought, well, that's what he told me to do. So I'm going to egg wash them and I'm going to put them in the oven. And I mean, they were tasty, but they were flat and a little bit doughy and kind of heavy. And I thought, hang on, like it actually reminds me a little bit of that croissant that I had in Paris. Like, like, because essentially I've, I've, replicated that process that he said to me, but this isn't the croissant that I imagined that I could reverse engineer. And that being like a real pivotal moment for me because I thought, okay, now I really get to start playing around with my own variables. So from that day on, every day I made the croissants, I would change one variable at a time. And again, that's a real engineering mindset. Like if you change two variables, when the product's different the next day, you don't know which of the variables has had the effect. So I would change one thing at a time and I would get up and I would bake the croissants and I would analyze the change that I'd made and how it affected the finished product. And it became, I think it was about a three or four month process where wow. every day, I, yeah, it was a long process. But that was a real pivotal moment for me looking at, at you know, information someone else had given me and the result of the product and then having this, this realization that like, hang on, this is, this is where I really put my understanding of experimentation and testing into practice. And this is where I can change this product with my own knowledge. And like, I learned so much in that three or four months about the product and about the effect of temperature, humidity, and time. And I do remember the day that like I came downstairs and like, this is, this is maybe three months on and I pulled the croissants out of the prover and I've described this to some of my bakers and it's a funny way to describe it. But for me, a croissant looks perfect when the surface of it is kind of like the skin of a beach volleyballer. Like, (laughs) you know, it's not sinewy or, or there's no cellulite. It's just like smooth and perfectly filled out. And um, I remember pulling them out and I'd never seen a croissant that had looked like this proven, like not in Paris, not in like not in any of the little places that I'd sort of done trials in Melbourne when I got back from Paris. I thought this looks ready. Like this looks perfect to bake. And I pulled them out of the oven and they were, they were like 
here on this tray was that perfect croissant that I'd imagined that I wanted to reverse engineer. So I quickly put them in like in this tray that I had. And at the time, Cam, my brother, owned a cafe down in Port Melbourne. And I raced them down to him. I'm like, you've got to try one. And I then forced him to be my first customer that would like – we you know, supply them at his cafe and I think he'd order like 10 or 12 a day, which was a tiny amount. But yeah, he was, he was my first customer. And I do remember that day packing them up and being really proud thinking, Oh, this is a product that I can take to market. You mentioned a three day process and so many um, phases in regards to making a croissant. I mean, what are the real key moments in making a, an amazing croissant? I, it's funny, like, all the moments are key moments and it sounds silly, but it's the approach that we take at Loon that if you cut any corner, you are going to affect the the end product. And if you can cut one corner, it's that slippery slope where maybe the next day you decide that, oh, well, if that wasn't so important, maybe this isn't so important. So I will slide on that. But I, I think in terms of like really important steps, um, the – for us, like we practice and like one thing that is classic about it is that it's a three-day process and I think traditionally croissants were a three-day process and, you know, modernization of um, equipment and and the demand that people want has forced bakers over time to shorten that process. And now like some bakeries would from like woe to go would have a croissant up inside 12 hours. But if you do practice that three-day process, the first day when you make the dough, it gets a period of time at room temperature to do its first prove. And then it gets put in a fridge overnight for like 24 hours. And it has this long, slow prove at a cold temperature where it really develops complexity of flavor in that time. And for me, that's one of the key phases that like, obviously you're not doing anything to, to the product at that time, but the ingredients and the yeast are working together to create a much deeper, more complex flavor than you'd get if you didn't have that prove overnight. I think then um, for me that, so day two represents when you knock that dough back. So you knock the air out of it and then you start the process of lamination where you take your, your slab of dough and your slab of butter and you start to create those, those many layers that are that are in croissant pastry. And for me, the the key point on that is uh, temperature control. So every time you pull the dough out of the fridge to do another turn, which is when you fold the dough to create more layers, if your room is really warm and you are slow to do that part of the process, you start to activate the yeast in the dough, which means that in that final moment of proving and in the oven, the yeast will have lost some of its punch and its activity. But also if you're working in a warm room and you take your time, you're going, you're going to start to melt your butter. And over the years, my knowledge of butter has grown to the point where like really respecting the temperature and the working properties of that butter can really change the end product of, of your croissant. So time and temperature of, of that stage of creating the layers and then shaping the croissant. And then um, the proving. So for me, that's that, that's that part where I spent, you know, weeks um, changing the variables of adjusting temperature and humidity and time to find the perfect combination of, of how long you should prove a croissant for and what the environment is that you prove it in. Um, and that can, like, if you prove a croissant at too high a temperature and melt your butter, 
the like this is so scientific. I'm sorry to be so specific, but it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's important in understanding like. Um, many croissants out there on the market are visually the same size as a loon croissant, but if you put them on scales, they're twice as heavy as a loon croissant. Wow. And, yeah. And um, like the, I think the true beauty in a croissant is the lightness and the air pockets that you create in it that it really feels like you're just eating like a, a crispy, fluffy cloud of butter rather than a heavy, doughy product. And in order to achieve that lightness, at every stage of the process, you need to keep your butter solid, which includes in the proving process because butter has particles of water suspended all the way through it. And if your butter starts to melt while the croissant's proving, those suspended uh, particles of water dissipate. And in the oven, if you've been able to maintain the particles of butter like spread throughout the solid butter – those particles of water create steam that push the layers of croissant apart. So it's not only the butter melting to separate the dough, but it's also creating that lift. And therefore, like that proving process before they're baked, if you prove it too high a temperature, you'll melt your butter out. And that's when you get a really greasy, heavy croissant. Tell us about the site and the um, enigma of, of Loon, because it's not just the most extraordinary croissant. It's the, the cult status. It's the window that people queue at. Um, what was the thinking behind the creation of all of this? I think when we moved from Elwood, um, like as I said, Elwood was this really nondescript, like 20 square metre, essentially hole in the wall. And um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, during the two years that Cam and I operated out of Elwood as a little retail store, people would start lining up from three o'clock in the morning. And by the time we opened a little window at 6.30 to start handing out raffle tickets to indicate your place in line and also allow you the purchase of up to six pastries, often at 6.30, we'd already have 100 people lined up around the block waiting. Wow! And there was this because there was such demand and we'd sell out so quickly every day, every single pastry that went into people's hands was fresh out of the oven. Like, and this was an experience that I don't think Australians had had. Like most bakeries start baking at one or two in the morning and have all their products baked up for opening time. And if you walk in at nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, that croissant might've been sitting there for four or five hours already. So to have one that's straight out of the oven is a real life-changing experience. Um, we realized when we moved to Fitzroy, which is a 400 square meter warehouse, um, that, that like, which is what we wanted to do, we'd be able to increase our production. And increasing our production meant being able to service more people, which meant that there would be less need to jump in a line so early in the morning to ensure your six pastries, you know, for that day. And we needed to figure out, like, we need people to understand why, if you if there is a line there, why it's worth standing in the line. And this is where the idea of the cube came from, which is that glass room that sits in the middle of the warehouse in Fitzroy where the raw pastry is made. And if you've waited in line for an hour to buy some croissants, but you can watch the pastry chefs working while you're waiting and you can see the level of detail and attention and care that they're applying to that product, you don't question 
the weight that you've just had in line or you don't question the price point on the croissant because you understand, even if you don't fully understand what they're doing, you can understand how much care and attention has gone into that product that you're finally buying. And it's art, like it's it's theatre. So watching the pastry chefs work there is actually really hypnotic. Like they get into this rhythm of rolling the croissants and and it's almost like it's kind of like pastry Olympics. Like it's, it's that they've got it down to a fine art. They're like Olympian pastry chefs that, that every little detail matters. And um, I think that's the thing that makes Loon that special place to visit rather than just, you know, sling down to my local bakery and get a croissant. Like not only do you know that you're going to get a fresh croissant straight out of the oven, but you can really appreciate what's gone into making that product. Has there been a croissant-related experience that you've had that's blown your mind? Like, this is going to sound really bad, but, <laughs> like, I've only had mind-blowing croissant experiences from a loon croissant, and, like, I still have them. Like, from time to time, I'll get one, and it's just that perfect window of time out of the oven that, like, all the science and magic seems to come together and you just sit there and, like, for a moment I'm just lost in what I'm eating. In terms of memorable experience, though, when I was working in Paris, um, we'd start work at about 5.36 in the morning and I only worked in the raw pastry kitchen, which was the first floor above the, like, the shop and where the baking happened. And it was in this beautiful old Belle Epoque style bakery in, you know, the Houseman style um, architecture in Paris. And we had seven big like floor to ceiling sash windows on that first floor, which is rare that you actually get daylight and fresh air if you're working in a pastry kitchen. But we'd take our aprons off at eight o'clock in the morning and have a coffee and you'd put your apron on the bench and you'd sit up on the bench, you know, where you worked the pastry and you'd have your coffee and, and some mornings we'd go downstairs and um, and get a fresh croissant out of the oven. And it was a little bit of like, what is this life that I'm living kind of moment when we do that, where you'd sit on the bench in this beautiful boulangerie in Paris that you were working, eat a croissant fresh out of the oven and look out the sash window and like, this little kid every morning, it was his ritual when we were doing that, the dad would open the window on the street opposite us and the little like three-year-old kid would be like, bonjour, and he'd wave to us and I'm like, oh, I'm living in a movie. <laughs> so for me, maybe that's like it, it's, it wasn't necessarily a mind-blowing croissant, like it was better than what I'd ever had before, but it was the whole imagery and, and scenario surrounding it that made it really special. You've created one of the most uh, iconic uh, food products in Australia and experiences. What is it that you love, though, about what you do? That's very nice of you to say, firstly. Thank you. And um, I, I, don't, I don't really ever think that. Um, I think in, the, in maybe the first few years of Loon, I was so caught up in making this product that was as perfect for me as it could possibly be. Like I'm incredibly detail focused, like to a fault sometimes, like I can become a bit blinkered and lose sight of the bigger, the bigger picture. But um, with my brother coming on board, I'm very blessed to have a business partner that has very complementary skills to me. And like lucky for me, Cam had um, the ability to help 
me and, and, and like to help himself, but for us to be able to grow Loon. And um, to this day now, we have over 120 employees that work at Loon. Yeah. And I think like my role at Loon over the last few years has really had to change from being that like blinkered detail focused person to an employer who is responsible for like the, the, the job security and livelihoods of now 120 people. And now it's taken a long time for me to learn how to do this because I'm also a bit of a control freak and I'm not good at letting go of stuff. But through this like gentle, like handholding from Cam of like, Katie, you've got to like let go of that and you've got to stop doing that. And you can't have like, you can't be the one to do that anymore. I've actually realized like what joy and satisfaction there can be in recruiting an amazing pastry chef that does come along with their own ideas and actually give them the autonomy to go and take this product that that I created and make it even better with their ideas and 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 you know the things that they can add to it or or the knowledge that they can bring to it and it gives me great pleasure now like I'll walk into Loon and see a counter full of pastries um you know five or six of which are new menu items that I wasn't responsible for coming up with. And, you know, one of these amazing pastry chefs that work for us has come along with this idea and created created this new flavor and experience. And they've been inspired by the foundational product of Loon and created this. And it's like now I'm very, very proud of uh, everybody that works at Loon. Um, it gives me a lot of pleasure to think that it all started from this one little shop and one product, but now all these brilliant people are bringing their own ideas to the table and it's actually just making Loon even more amazing. Have you combined your Formula One background and pastry expertise and had the chance <laughs> to serve your croissants at the Melbourne Grand Prix, for example? <laughs> yes, I have. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's literally my favourite four days of the year. Like, I love it. Um, I still have a few friends that work at the Mercedes F1 team and about seven or eight years ago now, um, they flew out to Melbourne for the Grand Prix and I was still based in Elwood. And um, the, this particular friend, her dad uh, used to be Etten Senna's race engineer, at, um, I, I think at Ferrari. Um, and her brother is an IndyCar driver and she's worked in uh, marketing and corporate hospitality for Formula One her whole career. Anyway, she her they, her family also own an avocado ranch in California, and she calls me up and she's like, "Do you reckon you could do an avocado pastry?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'll do that for you." And she said, "Oh my gosh, like I think I can get you and your family tickets to race day to come and hang out in the pits with the Mercedes team." So Cam and I went along with Mum and Dad, and we brought um, you know I think twenty or thirty pastries for the team. And the next year, she contacted me and said is there any chance you'd supply the team with pastries for the, the four days of the race? So it's become a tradition and she doesn't work for the team anymore, but now we have our own contacts that we've built in there. And for four days, we just free of charge. We, we happily supply the Mercedes F1 team and it's, it's not their guests, literally just the mechanics and the engineers and the people that work for the team, that's their breakfast. And then Cam and I go along on the Sunday and watch the race. And it's, it's a really special coming together of my two very diverse careers. Well, that's extraordinary, Kate, and what you've created is extraordinary and we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds to share your story today. Um, oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Amazing. Thanks, Huck. 
This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.